0: Welcome to The Corner, La Source's digital show dedicated to the sport and entertainment industry. Every two weeks, we invite a professional to share their experience, background and challenges. The sport industry moves fast and having their insights is the best way to keep up to speed. Welcome to The Corner. Hello, everyone. Glad to have you here again uh, for our seventh episode of Le Corner International. Today, a very special day for me. Uh, very happy to welcome Mihir Warabalka, uh <laughs> CEO of Lightlike, a uh, colleague of mine over the last 10 years and friend now. Um, but uh, but yeah, Mihir, very nice to have you here.
1: Thank you for having me. Um, I suppose I'm not that good of a friend if it took me
0: Took the seventh episode for for
1: me to come on here.
0: We <laughs> were <laughs> just building up the profile, and now that we you know met our standard, we're happy to have you here. But cool, yeah. Just give a quick introduction of yourself, your you know personal professional background that that drove you to now being the CEO of LifeLike? Yeah, I mean, look.
1: Uh, professionally, I'm, I'm, I'm co-founder and CEO of LiveLike. Prior to that, um, you know, chief business officer, and then CEO of Ufoot um salmon you know obviously uh, just for the audience to know um you and I have now worked together across three different product lines I suppose you know previously at Ufoot when we started working together uh, which was uh, basically providing uh, democratizing data creation and usage um in in soccer um this would probably we would say ahead ahead of our times a little bit
0: um we say football for
1: Oh, sorry. Yes. Football. That's right. We are, we are talking to an international audience so I can revert back to my natural ways. Uh, I have, I have uh, had to adapt since I've been in the U S for the past five years now. Uh, But I would call it football as well. Um, Growing up in India. So yeah. uh, You know, soccer, football um, for you foot. And then live like VR, the VR arm of what live like was doing. And now obviously the audience engagement suite. So um, you know, Spent quite a bit of time in the world of sports business now, but prior to that, I I, I studied engineering. I grew up uh, in India, you know. Uh, did investment banking in the middle, so I've had a uh, sort of a circuitous path to get to where we are today. Um, but have definitely been entrepreneurial for the past decade or so.
0: Yeah, nice, and we'll get back to the live link piece a little bit later on in the, in the conversation, but. Um what got you to sports was it always a target because yeah coming from investment banking you weren't really meant to be in the sports area or was it some something that was always part of your of your objectives
1: you know i don't think i ever really charted out my uh, professional journey uh, necessarily i think i've always i've always you know ever since i remember it uh, taken it as like what's the next step rather than plotting five steps ahead that's from a personal professional standpoint, I, I would say in a company strategy standpoint, we have to always think a little bit farther ahead. But from a professional journey, you know, I when I was studying engineering, the next step was always, okay, I want to go to the US to study engineering. When I was studying my master, when I was doing my master's in the US, um, the next step was always, okay, I need to get an engineering job. But frankly, I think that, you know, my second second year at Georgia Tech, was when I really started thinking about what I want to do. And I mean, I I guess I was 22 22 years old at that point. Um, And I realized that engineering was not necessarily my cup of tea per se. It was, you know, I love the architecture of it. I love the the technology concepts of it. I love the real world applications for it, but I was not a developer at heart. And I I always thought I was good enough. I was never going to be amazing at it. And, um, you know, for me... That's when I decided to make a move into investment banking. You know, I had already taken a liking to economics and finance, uh, took a few courses when I was at Georgia Tech and the mortgage crisis, the subprime mortgage crisis of 2007 was happening right at that time. So, you know, everything was in the news all the time, Main Street versus Wall Street. And that really, really captured my interest. And um, that that journey, I mean, I probably think I spent about nine months trying to find a job in investment banking. It was probably the toughest time to get into banking because all the banks were starting to do layoffs. Uh, I probably was one of the last few, last wave of students that, were, that even got a job. And even then, half of my analyst class was let go within the first three months. So I would think of myself as a survivor in that sense. Um, but sports has always been a Passion. I I grew up playing sports, competing myself. I uh, watch sports all the time, Um, and you know I did take a particular interest into the business of sports. So even in back in two thousand six and seven, I would I would spend time on on trading on 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 NBA and NFL trades. I would um, uh, you know try to learn more about the you know trade negotiations, collective bargaining agreements. Of the NBA, so there was always an interest, but I don't think I ever really thought about wanting to work in sports per se. The only opportunity that I got when I was in banking was there was a uh, real estate developer that was trying to get financing for to build out a Formula One racetrack in New York, New Jersey, and that probably was the one project that I was the most excited about. And even my colleagues all around me knew how much of a sports fan I was, and especially Formula One. Schumacher was retiring not retiring all of while I was in banking and so they put me uh, they staffed me on that project so that was probably my first um, foray into the business of sports you know
0: yeah
1: project financing etc but yeah I mean after that I, I think uh, I got into I specifically got into sports because one of my uh, you know banking friends and, um, and, and, and you know we've stayed friends since then Charles Lorenzo um, had invested in Ufoot. Uh, he was the co-founder and an early investor, largest investor in the company called Ufoot. Um, and so when I was leaving banking and I was uh, I was visiting him in London in 2012 during the Olympics, he started basically talking to me about Ufoot and suggested why don't why don't I think about um, coming on and helping with the global expansion. So that's really how I got into sports. Yeah.
0: That's interesting. So, actually, joining an entrepreneurial journey wasn't really a target of yours. Like, that's not something you had scheduled. It's more something that came up and then really embraced that entrepreneurial journey.
1: Yeah. So, before Ufoot, uh, I mean, between my time in banking and Ufoot, I had actually co-founded um, an edu- education technology company in India um, called Zaya. And that probably was my first foray into entrepreneurship. But even that was not planned. I was leaving banking. My, my ex-roommate and friend, Neil, was the one who started Zaya. He was, he was on a nomadic journey around South Korea, Mongolia, you know, just trying to work with uh, charities and uh, orphanages, getting them internet set up, uh, you know, getting them with wireless connectivity and in, in creating computer labs in all of these orphanages. That journey sort of inspired me. I, I I decided, I told Neil that, look, let me help out as, as much as I can. I'm going to move back to India. Why don't I start Zaya? At that time, it was called teacher class in India. And that really was the first time I ever thought about doing something on my own. Um, it was meant to be a stopgap. It was not meant to be a long-term thing. you know. Uh, and then when we started doing it and we just picked up traction, I mean, the technology was cool. We started getting a lot of um, uh, you know, investors looking at it. A, a lot of uh, conferences that we presented at, we saw a lot of traction. So that just became like, from that point on. Um, and candidly, I was waiting to get into business school at that time, and I just ended up being waitlisted at pretty much every school that I applied to. So for like eighteen months, I was just on a B school waitlist, which probably is the best thing that happened to me um, in in hindsight. And that's when, so from Zaya to U, Zaya to uh, Uford, I think that at that time was definitely I was squarely in the entrepreneurial journey at that point.
0: Yeah, th- that's a funny thing because I never I never saw your arrival in the sports industry and entrepreneurial world in the same way that I saw mine, but mine was kind of like I didn't do the right studies to arrive at the right in the right positions in the big organizations, so the entrepreneurial journey was Kind of the only one that was out there, which was more based on result and, you know, the hustle and what you're able to bring versus arriving in a good spot. And actually, when I look at it, it fits much better my personality and obviously yours, too, in in the sense that like that creative aspect versus being one tiny piece of a bigger organization is actually the most exciting part of our journey, if, uh, if you can relate to that.
1: I mean look I have I have mentioned this to all the people that I talk to you know the reason why you're in my partnership uh, is not has been successfully working for the past 8 years or so now um and this is you know how many times a year do we meet probably like we we can count on one hand how many times we meet per year probably like 5 to 6 times at best yeah. um in the last 8 years now and and still, I think we probably have the strongest uh, relationship out of most people that I've worked with in the last fifteen years, and that's probably because we both are on autopilot. We both are self sufficient. Uh, you know, we don't necessarily need guidance per se, and yet I think we can support each other whenever we are discussing, you know, commercial negotiations or tag teaming on certain on going after certain deals and contracts. And I think that part I recognized in myself a long time ago, being part of an investment banking. Um, even within investment banking the projects where there were you know I, I guess i started as an analyst and then as a then became an associate but there were so many layers so if there were ever there was ever a project where it was i'm the analyst there was an associate above me then there was a vice president then a director and a managing director if there were so many lines of hierarchy in there or levels of hierarchy i was not it, it the project was not as fun yeah because th- the buck didn't stop with me. Someone above me was always there to fix something or to create more work. And the projects where I worked directly with a director or a managing director, where I had the responsibility to come up with the idea, to sort of to source the idea, to execute the idea, to fix fix issues, was probably the part where I enjoyed the most. Even if the pressure was higher and the stress was higher, and that already was proof enough that I should not be part of a large organization, a small cog in a, in a wheel or like small part of a big organization is not my cup of tea. I definitely wanted to have a place where I was making the decisions. I, I had responsibility. I had to own up to my mistakes. There was no one that I could really blame if things didn't go right or wrong. Yeah. and then obviously on, on on the positive side you know reap the reap the rewards of of the success as well
0: so yeah 100 percent yeah it, you're willing to take ownership for successes but also defeats and that's an interesting part in the in an entrepreneurial journey and so uh, of your experience so far like what do you think makes a good entrepreneur like what does it take uh to be one of those successful startups out there versus you know failing which is once again that's something that's dramatic it's part of the I mean we've failed multiple
1: office, times already yeah. at this point. Yeah. I think I think having an appetite for failure um is one, you know, uh, you know, being able to bounce back. Yeah, I think the glass half full mentality, I mean you can you there are many adjectives or many many terms that sort of, you know, tenacious, persistent, uh, you know, hustler is something that is used a lot. Um but I would say probably the things that I have focused on the most are a being passionate about the job. Like I, I I mean, if you're not passionate about it, it's over. Um uh, two, um
0: That's one thing having, that's important, right? Like because yeah. that's one thing we that, that I always discuss with the people that have more traditional ways of living, you know, a nine to six or whatever the time frame is that you yeah. spend at work, and then beyond it, we're all we've always been fine working 10, 12 hours because it doesn't actually feel like work. It's kind of like and your time off, you're like, how can I keep the wheel moving? Because at the end of the day, You know, at the end of the day, you're working on those big events that you're watching on television, right? And that you've both always been there. It's kind of like, just let me work on it because I want to be part of it. But it doesn't feel like extensive work. Yeah, I mean, I'm living a dream. Like I, out of all my friends,
1: I don't get how much success any of my friends have. I am not jealous of their jobs only because... I feel like I am living mine and probably every majority of males' fans' dreams here. Like, in the past five years, we have worked on and attended literally every major event that I could ever want to attend. The World Cup Finals, Champions League Finals, NBA, NFL, Super Bowl. I've been to three Super Bowls in the last five years now. I mean work with team owners you know the the godfather of the nba the commissioner and david stern was our investor and mentor i mean i don't i don't know what more someone would want to be passionate about this job and even in terms of the people that we hire going forward you know we've always made the comment that you know the first thing we need is someone who's really passionate about it whether you're passionate about the technology that's serving the sports industry or the sports industry itself that doesn't matter the fact that you being at live, like makes you feel that pride. I mean, I, I, I I go crazy. I mean, people might think that's weird, but I go crazy during the holiday break where I'm like, God, like
0: everyone's, everyone's tuned off. Like, you know, I I, give us an example of crazy stuff that happened in your life to show how over-involved you have to be in the entrepreneurship side of things. I mean, I don't know if
1: there's one or two specific things, but I would say like, you know, no, no, you know what? I know one. Oh, why
0: don't why why you jog my memory and then probably I'll, I'll talk about it. <laughs> huh? When you receive that notification at the, at the, before walking down the aisle. Oh, oh my God! <laughs> I, I, I mean, there was a running
1: joke between all of our investors. I mean, these are these are guys from like Deepin from Courtside, Jay, who was at that time at Evolution Media, and then Cole Van Nice, and these guys at Elysium, <laughs> or even David Strand. There was there was a joke amongst them that you know, uh, you know, which airport did me here call you from today? Like, you know, I was constantly on the road for the first three years of life. Like, I was on a diff, in a different country every week, and um. I would always be taking a car calls from the airport or from the taxi or in an elevator. And and I was told, you know, I got married in April uh, 2016. And I was told during that week, people didn't want to talk to me. People were like, we are not taking your calls. I don't care what how urgent it is. And uh, it just so happened that they didn't know the exact date. And so um, uh, one of them called me um just as i was about to walk down the aisle i mean i was just waiting for the music like like people were just getting settled down and i was waiting at the the top of the aisle effectively and i uh you know i got a call or a message from someone saying hey is it done and i i literally i took my phone out i took a picture and i said happening as we speak <laughs> and and everyone the people were just like just keep your phone away why do you have your phone with you right now even at the wedding actually I had a VR headset and like the first night after like when people started drinking, that headset got passed around, got it, you know, in the Corona world, that feels weird. Like that one headset was being used by like 40 people. But,
0: everyone and yeah.
1: but every single person, like there are so many pictures from our wedding where people were just seeing our demos. Uh, I remember it was, I think if I'm not wrong at that time, it was probably either the Man City Southampton game or maybe the PSG Canal. But on, on canal, but, uh, that demo was used at the wedding so much. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, in general that, like, you know, my wife is like on weekends, she's like, can you just keep your phone away? And I'm like, you know, I, I can't, it, it's hard to, to sort of zone out.
0: Yeah. And that's one of the things, right. That's one of the counterparts. And I think that, yeah, people around us have a tough time understanding it and accepting it at some point, but I guess it's part of the, it's part of the entrepreneur journey. And to be honest, yeah. it's, it's very much the case of much most of the people that we're working with. Like whenever I run into the guys from WSC or, you know, crazy mindset, like we all have that, right?
1: Yeah. Uh, we We don't think of it as like when people ask, I mean, I, I remember when I, I would tell Aviv, I'm like, I've seen him now. Like we meet at every conference or, now he's just like going from Israel to Seattle, to Atlanta, to then, you know, stopping in London, then going back to New York and then going back to Tel Aviv. And that was my journey for the first three, four years as well, right? Like yeah. I was shuttling between Asia, US, Europe, just like on a five week road trip every like and then a week in the middle to meet my wife in India. Basically, that's what that's what life was. And no one can really understand why you're doing it. I I, I keep telling people, I'm like, no one is making me do it. Except myself. Like I also kept keep telling people that I can turn it off whenever I want. I think that's probably harder than (laughs) than I want to make it sound. What I'm trying to make it sound as that is that I'm my own boss over here and I'm I'm doing it, I'm doing what needs to be done. It's not like someone is making me do it.
0: Yeah. And it's part of what we like, right? And so what do you dislike actually about that journey? Like other things like every once in a while I'll tell you on my perspective, I'm like why can't I sh- just shut it down? Why do I have to answer a WhatsApp message at 10 o'clock if I receive it? Why can't I just like spend that right quality time without having the mindset? Like, what do you dislike about the journey? Because there has to be some tough parts. And that's also part of the journey. And people have to understand it's not only the fun of attending the Super Bowl, the hustle of taking a plane and then a potential meeting canceling up on you. You know, like 100%. That's also- yeah. I mean, look, I think that this is true of any... um
1: client side or, you know, sell side businesses in general, where you're always at the mercy of a client. And, you know, and and you obviously, you would want it to, but it would be unreasonable to expect people on the other side of the table to always care about something as much as you do. Um, And, you know, the constant pushback or constant postponement, um, when clients don't necessarily apply to you, I mean, those are, I I wouldn't call them uh, things that really eat at me. I mean, they are f- sources of frustration at that time. And then you bounce back and you, you're you like, okay, cool. I'll, I'll get back to you guys in two weeks from now. I mean, that's the persistence of the entrepreneurial journey that I was talking about earlier. You don't, you can't really take those no's as, you know, uh, too hard. Like you can't be too hard on yourself during those times. But from a, I mean, I think it's probably similar to you, right? Like not, not being able to turn off because you're so passionate about it also means that you know there were quite a few times in the early part at least when we were having internal troubles or whether it was um you know we were in the in the middle of fundraising and things weren't going right or whatever and suddenly you're like it basically eats at every aspect of your life and it starts creeping home and you know uh you know the tone of voice and the you know you're just not as excited about day-to-day things that as you are usually i mean i remember so many times when i would go to the gym I want to do like a 45 minute workout. I see a message in the first five minutes, which like now I'm like suddenly sucked into this world and I can't do the workout. I'm just like half hard, half harding, uh, you know, doing it half-heartedly on the treadmill. Like I'm like stopping, you know, every five minutes and you just like, once that starts happening, that's probably the part that, um, sucks the most, and it it definitely you know it can take it take over. I mean, if you're mentally not strong enough, I remember I had to start doing meditation, and I started getting into headspace, and started talking to people like a therapist just for a couple of months to be like, hey, how do I control these this anxiety? I mean, anxiety was probably the biggest side effect of all of it.
0: Yeah, you know what? Actually, while you were discussing it, one of the tough things that I always felt, and not being the CEO, but being part of a leadership group, yeah. is whenever you know you're in a tough spot. And you have to keep everyone going, and but yeah. you know that maybe two months from now you're not sure you're going to have the runway, and yeah. you can't discuss that openly. Yeah, and so th- that's also a, p- a tough part of the the nuance of what you can tell and not tell your employees. That's also one of the tough parts of the job. I feel one hundred percent. I mean, you are the buffer, right? I
1: mean, uh, it, it's kind of funny that I didn't even think about that when I, when you asked the question because it's just such part and parcel, right? Like of every day, like your um you cannot even even sharing good news is sometimes um, like you have to keep it bottled up because there are things until it's done it's not done and yeah. you know you don't want to you don't want to be that person that sort of pumps everyone up with something that's coming and then it doesn't happen and now you're like left with the fallout of that right like why didn't it happen oh my god like you know <laughs> yeah. I, so many times people who are working in the companies don't even know what's going on behind the scenes, and you know that fine balance with how much you can share and what you can't share is um, it's threading the needle, and I'm still learning. I definitely have made a few mistakes in that regard in my time,
0: yeah, and so moving from the entrepreneurial journey side of things more to the to the purely business side of things and maybe deep diving a bit more into the live like topic mm-hmm. um, so to begin with, how would you relate? Back in 2015, 16, when VR was, you know, Goldman Sachs was saying that it was going to be the biggest industry in the world, and you know, to mm-hmm. yeah. look at it, how exciting was it to be in the VR space back in that in those days? I mean,
1: look, the first two years of VR were like basically euphoric. Like everyone who saw the demo was blown away by it. Every, I mean, it's it's like a, it's something from the movies, right? Like. You never think of it that way. I mean, the most important part was when people saw the demos, they could imagine what the future could look like, even though it was not there yet, they could clearly understand where this can all go. And I think that, you know, playing on that people's imagination was something that was really exciting. Um, I don't know if I ever really bought into the hype of VR, the way, you know, seeing those Goldman Sachs reports and stuff, like, you know... I think you and I probably out of most people that were involved in the business were more circumspect and rational about where this was going. And, you know,
0: yeah, we actually trusted people that we believe to be more intelligent than us, but we realized that we were the ones on the field and really seeing what was completely happening in some way.
1: Yeah. I mean, that was like, those estimates were always like ideal world, right? Like, But, you know, the moment you take the ideal world and you overlay it on top of real world you know especially in our space right like in our space in the world of sports and entertainment it wasn't how cool it was going to be it was are the people that are that are in charge of making it a success going to take it as seriously and you know are they going to have the budgets to do the production are they going to care enough to even bother with it are they going to staff the right people on their side to make it a success um? Or are we always going to be fighting each battle on our own? Like those things, the moment we started seeing it in the first twelve months, we knew how big this was going to be, and I think we tempered our expectations accordingly. So you know, when you were when we were seeing like next, we are raise a hundred million dollars, or John raise fifty million dollars, I never thought that we could do the same thing, like you know, or that we should be raising like dozens and dozens of millions of dollars because there was no like. I don't think we ever really knew where it was going to go uh, in that regard. And we always knew that in the world of live sports, at least, the TV experience was always going to be the king. And so we had to figure out a way that where this made, how could VR complement that rather than replace it? I remember talking about this, like, you know, VR is going to kill cable. And I remember that was part of an interview or a PR release that we was going out from our side. And I was just like, we are not saying that. Like, A, I don't believe it. But yeah. B, you're antagonizing the very people that you want to partner with because that's their bread and butter.
0: Yeah, and it's it's a, yeah, it's something that was hard too because obviously VR wasn't necessarily for our generation as much as it, as it was to please and satisfy the the ears of organizations that wanted to touch you know Gen Zs and millennials. Yeah, and um, so that's one of the things, and so that's kind of when the pivot started, right? When we started saying, okay, that's a reality. Product is great. People love it. Wow effect every time. And to be honest, like when we see the SFR application out or the Sky World application out, like the wow effect is still there.
1: It's phenomenal. Yeah.
0: But it was also about how do we create a product that we believe in that we would actually use. And that's when the pivot started because we wanted to genuinely believe that the new product that we were launching was the one we were going to interact with. Yeah. I mean, I
1: think, I mean, look, I think if I'm not wrong, we introduced the magic window, which was, you know, we, it was our head non-headset version of the application, you know, so people could have the inner, we always went out with three pillars, right? There was the immersive, the interactive and the social. And the immersive could be turned on and off in interactive and social has stayed and till date, even the new product that we are working on. So, um, I think we introduced the Magic Window experience for Fox Sports. And that was back in 2016 or 2017. It was very, very early on. We knew that we could not be restricted to the headset market. And so we had to find a way to...
0: Uh, also, actually, that's good to know. So for people, for us on the business side, it was kind of a fight back then with the product side. I things. we're like completely. exploring the ultimate, you know, potential of VR. But at the same time, it was just a business reality that, you know, for the yeah. price, it had to be sold at. Just can be available for a thousand users. Completely. I mean, I think that's the part which people don't understand. Like, you know,
1: it's never startups succeed and fail not because of, you know, because if the idea was not good. I think it's all down to execution and strategy. And, you know, what's your go to market strategy? What's your product development strategy? You know, you can't have people sitting in Silicon Valley or in New York or or whatever trying to sell to clients in India without ever knowing what the ground realities are of, of, of how that product is actually going to get used. I mean, we, when we work with star sports, Hotstar in India for the IPL, they didn't even want the magic window experience, which was a non-headset version. They just wanted a web player because they had 25 million users and, and maybe 5,000 of them had headsets and they didn't want people to download a new app. I mean, I don't blame them. I, I, I mean, can I say that, Hey man, like you're not, you're missing the point. Yes. but do i am i missing the point if i don't understand why they are asking for it also true right like they don't want to launch a standalone application that people have to download and it cannibalizes their digital audience they want and, and and if they don't push for it that's going to be a failure in any case so can you know there are so many things that we have learned in the last 5 years but i think those are all the things that have led us to where today the product today is i mean when we first launched our when we first first demoed our current product in the for in in the board meeting. I remember the investors around the table were just like, oh my God, this is amazing. I mean, they could see themselves use it, right? Like they could, this was the first time our investors could see themselves using the product. And and they were like, why haven't we been doing this all along? And I was like, I think that's the most important part. I don't think we could have done this product in the beginning. I mean it's all the learnings of the last four years or three years that have gone into this product, which is what actually makes it special that a startup without the ground experience that we have, wouldn't have actually thought about building it this way. Um, and that's, I think, is probably our biggest USP now, is that we understand the business landscape, we understand the product landscape better than anyone else, we understand what channel partnerships and go-to-market strategies to adopt, we understand how the product needs to be developed. I mean, that's I feel like we have grown in confidence so much more over the last 12 months yeah, Because we finally feel like we have unlocked something that is special. And now it's about how do you scale this? Yeah. Which and I never thought was the case in VR. VR, every deal was that deal. It never was something where like, oh, this deal is going to lead to another 10 deals.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's also part of the learning too. I think that, that one thing that you learn in the entrepreneurial journey is like, there, there are those moments where somebody thinks they, own the whole world on the product side. And then sometimes you you think you have the reality on the business side of things. Like you're the ones talking to the, you're the one talking to the client. And I think just one thing that's super important in all that journey is the right balance. Right. And nobody, none of these investors, nobody out there is just looking for one single person. They want somebody to, you know, be the pilot, right? Like they, you need a, a strong CEO with, with, you know, with, uh, with obviously, um, the 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 mentality to drive the team etc but if you're going by yourself as a ceo and not putting forward the quality of your teams and listening to them because you are hiring them to be able to listen to them and for them to have their inputs etc i think that that's one very fine balance that's hard to find yeah and that we're currently finding
1: yeah i mean i i think taking over as the ceo i mean it's something that i that i wanted right um it was a responsibility that I wanted. It it was, it's probably been the biggest learning experience as well, just because the, the things that I pride myself on in the business development world and the strategy world are the exact things that I have to tone down when it comes to internal management. Um, and, and, you know, I think the personality traits that make me a good, external facing person are probably not the best personality traits when it comes to internal management. Um, you know, how, you know, whether you're aggressive, whether you're tactical, whether you're always like thinking five steps ahead um, is great on the fundraising side, on the business development, on the sales side. But, you know, in the, in the, in, in inside the company, you know, how do you get your com- and, and how do you get your uh, colleagues motivated how do you, um, how do you think about the day-to-day issues with them? You know, what are the things that motivate them to come to work? Because what motivates me is not necessarily that motivates them. And, you know, you have to always think from their perspective, which to a certain extent is also how you do sales, right? You're thinking, you're putting yourself in the client's shoes and trying to think of it. I just had to do more of that. I have, I'm, and I'm still trying to do more of that. Um, it just, it's, that's the part that doesn't come naturally. Um, yep. And that's probably been the biggest learning experience for me. Uh, and and I've had to lean on everyone else in the leadership team for that, right? Yourself, Lawrence, Kristen, Mega, different people in there, uh, Justin on the product and engineering side, um, the people in the organization that have that empathy for internal management. Um, I've had to lean on those folks for that, for sure.
0: Yeah. And so now that you're seeing, like from a CEO perspective, right, like Live Life is right now at a at a moment in his life where um, business starts coming, it's really all clicking. Is it kind of the moment where CEO feels, okay, the hard work is done and now we have to put the processes in place and we'll be fine? Or is it just driving more stress on different topics that feels like the, the, you know, the wheel is never completed?
1: Um, I don't think we can rest on our laurels. I mean... To a certain extent, we have been here before. We had that early, we wrote that early momentum on VR as well. And we sort of feel felt like we reached that peak when we did the FIFA World Cup in Russia, right? Yeah. And then it sort of plateaued out from that point on. And things that were not in our control and some things that we could have done better as well. Um, I think we are... The way I see it is like we have put in a lot of blood, sweat, and tears into getting to the point that we are, and we cannot lose that lead that we have sort of established and that, you know, that momentum that we have going for ourselves, we cannot lose that now. I think the hard work shifts, right? Like you don't have to, you don't have to keep doing the same hustle. I mean, you know, your and my conversations from a sales side, I mean, you and I were like, a, you know, just lone wolves. We were just going out there trying to get the deal done, Every whatever it took to get the deal done, right? Um, I think today we are much more, you know, how do we scale the team, the sales team? Well, how do we cross collaborate between how do we share best practices? It's not just, you know, Samuel going and getting his deal, Mihir going and getting his deal. It's how does LiveLight get a deal together collaboratively around the world and from, a, um, you know, finding that balance between business and product goals as well, right? right. We are, we have 100% shifted our product strategy, to be more long-term rather than short-term. You know, uh, building building features that all our clients will require rather than just one client. Uh, we don't, we, we, we usually push back on any feature request that has, that that can only be applied to one client.
0: We find other ways to do it. And yeah. these That's are it. all things. Just overall for entrepreneurs listening out there, just the fact of being capable and daring pushing back on agency-type ideas when yeah. you're a SaaS platform is so crucial also.
1: Yeah. Yeah, because I mean, look, we are working with some behemoth clients here, right? These are all triple A blue chip companies. I mean, some of the biggest biggest media companies in the world, they're all going to want to have their own um their own look and feel, flavor. They're gonna have their own ideas. And how do you position yourself to say, I hear you, um, I understand. In some situations, we'll adopt that. That's a good idea because I think we can productize that and take it to all other partners as well. And in some case situations saying, hey, doesn't make sense for LiveLike to be doing this. We can help you do it or it's just a bad idea, right? Yeah. I, we, we, there's, not, no, there's, no, there's not always a solution to it, but how much ever we can, and I think that's something that our partners appreciate about us is we go out of our way to make something happen for them if it's possible. Um, and if it's not possible, it's not because we don't want to do it. It's because it's actually not possible.
0: Yeah, and I think that that's super important because obviously it's easy to say, okay, you stick to your product strategy and you don't do the customization when you're looking to win a big client. At the end of the day, you want to do that particular customization. But I think there's a the, there's there is a good middle ground between saying, okay, we're willing to show you that we're will, we can't put the effort in convincing and do that additional step without going. Crazy on the customizations, making sure you and you have a good reasoning behind the fact that no, we will not do that and have some empathy, put yourself in my shoes so that you have the, you, you know, understand why we will not do it and why it probably doesn't even make sense for you to pay in any kind of way for it. Yeah.
1: I mean, I think that I would probably say the one thing that I'm proud of, of everything that we've done in the last five or six years, actually, is I would imagine every single one of our clients will say good things about us. I don't know I don't know a single client who would ever badmouth live like. I mean look, we have all had our ups and downs. I mean it's not always been smooth sailing and a perfect journey, but every single one of our clients will do a reference call for us and probably will say we like these guys because they always go above and beyond. And they help out whenever they can. And when they cannot, they respectfully tell us why, why that is the case and why they can't help out. And to a certain extent, that is probably the tug of war between business development and product. Yep. You know, How do you find a balance where product doesn't think that these guys are always doing what's best for the client and not what's best for the company? I think, I think you and I probably have, in the last three years, that's probably been the biggest maturation Mm-hmm. or where we have matured the most is that part is finding that balance where we are not always sort of, you know, there's the throw it over the wall type of a term, like whatever it gets to take a deal done And now it's the product team's problem to figure it out. I don't think we do that anymore. Um, we find that balance between both sides as much as we can. So neither side thinks that they are being thrown under the bus.
0: Yeah. And from a pure BD perspective, once again, it's where we where it's important for any organization to not allow the BD team to only have its ego in the conversation, but have the BD team yeah. include as fast as possible. The product team, the technical team, because product team want, they want to talk together. Technical team teams want to talk together. And if you're aligned at the business level, but you have all the rest of your teams aligned too, that's also a strategy, super important for any, for any startup, right? Completely. I mean, there are,
1: it, it, it's in the early days, it's hard to find that balance is because you want to just get that, you know, any major client. I mean, tomorrow, let's say, you know, just for the sake of an example, if, if Barcelona football clubs and tells live, like, we want to work with you guys, I mean, we're going to do whatever, like, the first instinct is we will do whatever it takes. Right. But that's all- it, even though I'm a Madrid fan, it's yeah. still a different story. Your case are problematic. That's another question. <laughs> Uh but you know in that scenario how do you find the balance to say you know what what this request is doesn't make sense this is actually not what live like does we'll give you to someone else does this fit into our broader company goals does this fit into our broader product strategy goals or product goals um does it derail us from what we're trying to do for our core business those are all important questions that you that have to be answered um otherwise you're going to piss the client off or the the inter, the team off and you want to find that balance and i think we have found that balance I, I mean i i would i think the 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 way we have built our current product the sdk um it's being it's taking all of that it's that striving to find that balance is actually what can, what is evident in our current product um is is um you know letting partners do what they want on top of what we do for them
0: yeah I think that one thing that's important about that for the global vision is also to say, see the long term version and make sure you operate fast at the, you know, day to day level. But make sure that it doesn't come in the way of the long term vision because at absolutely. the end of the day, people are going to judge. And if you're not signing this year, Barcelona for the right reason reasons, you might sign them two years from now for their right reasons again. Yeah,
1: absolutely. No, I mean I think that's I also, I mean, even our engineering team and our product team probably will attest to that fact. Like they probably appreciate that as much as anyone else is, you know, and and the good thing is they are now part of the journey too, right? Like we actually involve all of our, you know, product managers and engineers in these client calls so that they can, you know, voice their own opinion. Like you don't just take it from us, you know, get into the conversation, explain to the partners why we have built, like certain things are not uh, bugs, they're features, Like we have designed our product that way. You know, the reason why you can only do A B and not do, you know, Y and X, Y or whatever is because we have thought about that problem and we have decided this made the most sense. And here's why the moment you explain something to people, the conversation just goes completely differently. Rather than just saying, oh, we can't support this. No one wants to hear that. We can't support this because it doesn't make sense that like does this. It You should be doing it for these reasons. And that makes the conversation go much smoother, which probably is a trick that many people miss out. Uh, I'm still amazed whenever I'm in conversations where people just say no and they don't explain why. I'm like, you can make yourself look better by saying why you're saying no.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's a tough one, but that's also part of the market understanding. Uh, and- and people tend to forget that people need explanations and that they need to be listened to. And if yeah. you can tell them no and why, uh, it's also that you understand their problem and th- that empathy is, is very key. Completely, yeah. Um, and so to, to take a step back now from, from purely look, the live-like topic, like more from a high-level perspective, where do you see our industry going? What, what are the major changes that you would see coming and that you would like to see come?
1: from a live-like perspective from a long-term standpoint?
0: Just outside of the live-like perspective too. Like, what do you see be very key in terms... Like, I'll, I'll give you one, for example. Yeah. What I think is essential is that now broadcasters have to consider themselves as more than just video players. They have yeah. to consider themselves as community where hopefully 10 years from now... And it's already kind of the case, right? Like, yeah. I go to Canal+, Plus, I subscribe to Canal+, Plus because I have the means to do it for w- one... But yeah. also, it's an organization that works well. Their products are well done. There's a lot of content that's interesting. So, I, you know, if you ask me, what broadcaster would you feel close to? Yeah, I say, and I think that that sentiment has to be reinforced because you do feel close to a club. You do feel close to a lot of organizations in different way for X, Y, Z. And I think that organizations have to capitalize on that sense of community that has yeah, been yeah. for the most part In you know, you know, on the Uh, tech giants platforms and now the conversation is going to shift a little bit to find a more targeted community that fits your uh mindset
1: yeah i mean look i think the it's very interesting right like we can take a more broad picture uh view to this like you know every tech company is trying to be a media company and every media company is trying to act more like a tech company uh you know uh <laughs> t bought warner media and tried to get this trying to get into the content business peloton is creating classes and 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 apple is getting into music and 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 well not music necessarily but like video content and fitness classes and stuff and on the other hand you have you know disney acquired bamtech so they could be a tech company of their own as they go direct to consumer and and get that tech dna and I think you know we are obviously playing on the on the second side over here, like which is we're trying to help those media companies become tech companies to a certain extent, right? And um, it's not the DNA consumer technology. Like there's so much that is um, that is happening in the world of gaming and esports and just platforms like Twitch and Clubhouse and you know Discord that is. Completely foreign to the media world. And what we're trying to do there is bridge that gap. Um, You know, what are the best practices that from the world of gaming that can be brought to the world of media? Um, You know, to a certain extent by focusing only on the content and not on the experience, there is a lot of money that's being left on the table. You know, if your business model is entirely predicated on mass advertising and and subscriptions in certain situations, you're missing out on all the other ways you can make money, you know. E-commerce, merchandising, virtual commerce, digital gifting, tip jars, um, you know, peer-to-peer challenges, you know, now obviously betting is the topic of the day, topic of the year in in the US. Um, You know, social wagering, how do you get more peer-to-peer interactions when it comes to the wagering space? There is so much that can be driven, so much revenue that can be driven by a transactional business model, which requires certain fundamental building blocks. And those are the building blocks that LiveLike provides. Those building blocks are interactivity, community, um, engagement, bookkeeping, you know, there are so many things that have to be done first before you can get to those new revenue models. And I think that's the part that LiveLike is focused on. And obviously that's the part that you and I live and breathe every day. So that's where my mind goes first is I'd love to see these guys. And I'm not just selling my pitch. I mean, I truly 100% believe that. It's been our, it's been like social and interactive experiences has been our focus since we were doing VR. It's just it, the, those those principles are, have manifested themselves in a different way in our new product than when it did in VR. But yeah. I have no doubt in my mind that, you know, commun- there is no better fan base and audience than a passionate sports fan base. People already are there because they are fans of your content. Now you have to figure out how to keep them in your world and not lose them to the tech giants.
0: Yeah. And it is when you're watching that live game and your favorite athlete on the pitch is scoring an incredible goal that you will buy his jersey for yourself or for your son. And that's such a huge opportunity for all those broadcasters that acquire the rights so ex- at a, such expensive rates to do, you know, more than just distribute that content and add extra cameras for the sake of innovation. Completely. I mean... <laughs> You're the one spending billions
1: for the rights. You're the one spending millions to produce the content and distribute the content. And then once people see that content, they go somewhere else to talk about that content. Why? Why can't they talk about it on your own platform? Give them the opportunity to communicate about it on your own platform. I mean, that losing the user to someone else when that other person has not done anything to actually enable the conversation or enable the content is leaving so much money on the table it's madness
0: yeah and so to take another step back and a hard question for you if it wasn't the c the ceo at live lake what would be the dream job right now
1: oh my um you know it's funny i uh and people have people have gotten tired of me talking about about probably gotten tired of me talking about David Stern, but he just left such a big imp, you know had such a big impact on on my professional growth, personal growth as well. Frankly, in the last five years or six years or so, um, you know, I always joked with him that uh, you know I'm going to be the future commissioner of the NBA. <laughs> I don't know how much of that was me just trying to be like him or. Um, or the fact that I genuinely have a passion for sports and the business of sports. And I think, you know, I bring technology and, and media background to the table that, you know, that would be yeah. my dream job being the commissioner of the NBA is the is my dream job, whether I will be or not, that's probably not, I'm even I'm not egotistical enough to genuinely believe I will be. Uh, but that would, I would like, that's the,
0: that's the path I would probably want to go down. Yeah. Well, I guess you know, for any entrepreneur out there, this is the grail, right? The NBA is yeah. probably the biggest international league. There's yeah. the, the, the international strategy that worked the best out there. Yeah, uh, on one of the top sports. I mean, probably a lot of Amer- Americans dream about the NFL and being the commissioner of the NFL. But yeah. the, reality that the world wants, you know, like would want to be the, the the commissioner of the NBA or the CEO of the Premier League, probably.
1: It's it's it's. It's, you can do everything you want to do as a technologist when you're working at the NBA. NFTs, part of it. VR, AR, part of it. Uh, disrupting uh, long-form content with short-form highlights, been there, done that. Um, a huge social media presence, yes. You Do you like pop culture and entertainment? Cool. All these rappers and movie stars and celebrities, they all are fans and 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 are involved in there. Um, I mean, they're just part of this cultural zeitgeist. It's it's. I don't think any other league has that much influence on pop culture as the NBA does. And uh, God, I mean, it's just it's it just seems like a fun job, right? Yeah, I think, we, I, think I can do it. <laughs> <laughs> all the fun it should be like <laughs> i mean nothing is going to be more stressful and nerve-wracking than trying to build a company from scratch and you know worry that you're going to be out of money every two months for the next like you know basically spending two years or three years of your life thinking you're going to be out of cash every two or three months uh i, I feel like i've like, you know, the battle scars are there. Like you can only, you can only go higher from that point on.
0: Well, I guess the topics you have to handle as a commissioner of the NBA are a bit more important and are like, yeah, all in China. Like that's, that must have a history. Yeah, oh my God. That's true. Actually. I don't, I, I, that, what I don't envy, I don't envy
1: Adam Silver or, you know, any commissioner for that matter. I mean, when, when the president of the United States is basically railing against you for your national anthem policy. And, you know, how do you, how do you strike a balance or, you know, one of your biggest media partners and, and, you know, or, or countries that, that is a huge growth base for you um, basically shuts you off. I mean, I can't imagine the, the dynamics of that, but, you know, I, like with everything, I mean, you, you just, you, I think you have a good team around you. That's all I can say. I think Adam Silver has a great team around him. Uh,
0: cool. And, and to finish this off, um, what would you suggest uh to any entrepreneur out there in the sports industry, like in terms of articles, books, shows, movies that have inspired you in the last, in the last months? Um, yeah, I, um
1: when we were starting Live Like, I spent quite a bit of time um, reading a blog called Both Sides of the Table, which is by Mark Schuster from Upfront Ventures. Um, I really liked how this was back in 2012, 2013. I really liked how he talked about the journey from both the venture capitalist side as well as on the entrepreneur side. Like, you know, what are the things that you need to be careful about from a startup perspective? And what are the things that people want to think about and, and care about from a from a VC standpoint, you know, knowing what the other side wants and thinks like is so important when you're getting into these conversations. As we have been saying in the last, having empathy for the, who's on the other side of the table, putting themselves yourself in their shoes always helps in conversations. So I learned a lot from that blog. Uh, in the last five years, I've been a devout strategy reader by Ben Thompson. I don't think there's anyone, anyone that I, at least I have come across that does a better job of distilling big concepts uh, around that revolve around tech strategy um, and company strategy and how that dist- how that flows down to company mission culture etc. Um, mm-hmm. I I have found myself in the last three years reading a lot more um, daily blogs rather than books. I've found myself reading less and less books. I mean, my wife has basically told me I'm not allowed to buy any more books until i finish the one that i've actually bought already i start and i stop i just don't see myself having the mind space or the attention span to sit and read through an entire book but i used to read a lot of um i used to read a lot of history and religion type of books i think that was the one area that i enjoyed reading the most um history of christianity actually huh
0: Completely outside of the sports world, actually. Yeah,
1: I don't read anything related to sports. Actually, I've never read autobiographies. I have never. I I, I did read Shoe Dog, which okay, probably is tangential to the sports world just because of Nike's relevance to the world of sports. But that book was amazing. I God, that that's probably the last book that I read that was maybe eighteen months ago now, and I finished it in like less than a week just because I couldn't stop reading it. Um, that's Phil Knight's autobiography, um, about his journey with Nike, but I guess from my standpoint, I was thinking about his entrepreneurial journey as well.
0: Yeah. I've literally had that book next to my bed for the last three months and haven't had a chance to open the first page. It is,
1: it must read.
0: It's so good. And, and actually, you know, it gives
1: you, you know, the, 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 as an entrepreneur, I think that's a inspirational book. Uh, I never think of it as, in, I know I never read books because I think they're inspirational or motivational books. I never read those kind of, um, uh, I, those topics have never really excited me. Um, but this one, I could see myself getting motivated by, you know, reading about his journey and, and the hustle that he showed in the early 70s or whatever. But yeah, so I would say like, Stratecury, both sides of the table, Shoe Dog um, are must reads. And now we obviously, people are doing more and more podcasts. Yeah. But um, I don't have like one specific podcast that I listen to all the time. It's just whatever fancies, whatever, whatever mood I'm in when I'm going for a run.
0: I'll add one to to those books is what they don't teach you at Harvard Business School uh, is one I would recommend in terms of not over intellectualizing stuff, but analyzing the rational. That's the name of the book? Relationship, Yeah. What they don't teach you at Harvard Business School? Yeah, Mac Mac Cormack
1: cool i'll um who's by who mccormack mccormack okay yeah i'll um i'll read that one then or maybe i'll just skim through it and you can tell me (laughs) (laughs) that's
0: right cool and just last last little thing that we're gonna do quick questions you have to give us fast answers Oh. Uh, ready for it so nba or nfl nba Michael Jordan or LeBron James? Oh, come on! This
1: this is this shouldn't be a question. It's MJ all day long. Premier League or La Liga? More and more Premier League these days. It used to be La Liga a lot more when I was growing up. All or nothing
0: or the last dance? Oh, last dance. Cool. <laughs> last dance. Cool. All right, that's it. Thanks a lot, for me here. Uh, it I was great. Having it. Yeah.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me. This was fun.
0: Yeah. Thanks. Uh, Thanks for listening to us, guys. Uh, Hope you enjoyed it as much as we enjoy it as every single time. Lots of good takeaways from it. Um, And uh, look forward to having you on our next episode. Talk to you soon. Thank you.
1: Le Corner.